0: Welcome to the Whitefields Community Church Podcast. For more information about our church, including location and service times, visit us online at whitefieldschurch.com. If you are blessed by this message, please consider sharing it with others and leaving a rating or review on your favorite podcast app. Today's message comes from our series, 2 Corinthians Strength and Weakness.
1: Good morning, everyone. Please open in your Bibles to the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 12. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. That's where we're continuing today in our series called Strength in Weakness. This is our verse-by-verse study through the book of 2 Corinthians. That's how we like to study the Bible here at Whitefields Community Church. We like to study through entire books of the Bible, and we're currently in this study through 2 Corinthians, picking up where we left off last week in chapter 12, starting in verse 11. So as you open there in your Bibles and in your Bible apps, please bow your heads with me and let's pray as we open God's Word. Lord, at this time, we give you our attention. We give you our hearts. Lord, we ask that you would speak to us. And Lord, help us to be receptive to your word and responsive to it, Um, Lord, by submitting and surrendering our lives to you and saying, Lord, here we are. Send us, do with us as you please. We want to be fully submitted to you. And so, Lord, we avail ourselves to you during this time. We give you our attention. We give you our hearts. We ask that you would teach us and transform us by your spirit through your word. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, he was a young man who had his whole life ahead of him. And probably like many young people do, he was probably pondering the question, how should I spend my life? How should I spend my life? And it was around that time that God gave this young man a vision. In that vision, he saw God seated on his throne in heaven, and this vision was so powerful that this young man named Isaiah, he was filled with a sense of awe at how glorious the Lord is. But along with that sense of awe, he was also filled with a sense of his own inadequacy. God was so glorious, so powerful, so holy, how could he stand in the presence of such a holy God? But then in this vision, God sent an angel to touch him and to cleanse him from his sins. And this angel told Isaiah, he said, behold, your guilt is removed and your sins are atoned for. And then Isaiah heard the voice of God calling out saying, whom shall I send? Who will go? And Isaiah immediately responded and he said, here I am, Lord, send me. Having had this incredible vision of God's power and God's glory, having been touched by God and cleansed of his sins, Isaiah was eager to volunteer when God asked for a volunteer. The only problem was he hadn't waited to find out what the job was that he was signing up for. God was recruiting, but he didn't wait to find out what the job description was before he, re- before he responded and said he would do it. It's kind of funny if you think about it, really, because usually you wait to find out what a job is before you agree to do it, but Isaiah is like, no, I'll do it even before I know what the job is, and God says, okay, cool, I'm glad I've got you now. You're with me. You're going to do the job, so let me give you the job description. Here's what I need you to do. I need somebody who's going to go and preach to people for their entire life, and none of those people are ever going to listen to anything that person has to say. Wait, that's the job? preaching to people who aren't going to listen, who aren't going to receive what you say. I wonder if Isaiah was kind of kicking himself, saying, man, should have waited to hear the job description before I said I would do it. But I don't think that was his response because having had that vision of God, seeing who God is and what God had done for him to cleanse him of his sins, I think Isaiah was happy to say, whatever it is, Lord, Wherever it may be, my answer will always be yes. Whatever you tell me to do, wherever you tell me to go, my answer will be yes because you're the one who's seated on the throne, the highly exalted one, and you came down to save me. You loved me enough to take away my guilt, to redeem my life. And so whatever you call me to do or tell me to do, my answer will always be yes. And that's how Isaiah spent the rest of his life, doing what God called him to do. And it wasn't glamorous, and it certainly wasn't easy, but it was beautiful. It was beautiful because he knew that he was doing what God had called him to do. And knowing that allowed him to do it with confidence and joy, even in spite of the hardships that were involved in doing it. But it's an interesting phrase, isn't it? Have you thought about this? That phrase, how you spend your life, or how you spend your time. Because that word spend, that's the same word that we use when we talk about money, isn't it? So you spend money, you spend time, and you spend your life doing things. What that implies, that word spend, it implies that your life, your time, that these are finite resources. And you can spend them in lots of ways and in lots of places, but once you've spent them, they're gone and they don't come back. So the question is this, how will you spend your life? How will you spend this finite resource called your life? And my pastor was a man named Tom Stipe. He passed away a few years ago, but he always used to say this phrase. He always used to say, I want my life to be a penny in God's pocket that he can spend wherever and however it pleases him best. To me, that sounds a whole lot like what Isaiah said when he said, here I am, Lord, send me, even before he knew what God was calling him to do or where God was going to send him. It's an attitude of complete surrender to the will of God in your life. But where does that kind of attitude come from? Right, because if you've only got one life to live, if your life and your time are finite resources, then why would you want to spend your life and time serving others when you could spend it on yourself instead? Why would you spend your life doing what God wants you to do rather than doing what you want to do? Well, in our study here in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, today as we look at verses 11 through 21, what we're going to see is that spending your life for the sake of others is an act of love in response To God's love for you in Christ. See, in this section, Paul the Apostle is writing to the Corinthian Christians, the Christians in the Greek city of Corinth, and here's what he's gonna be talking about. He's gonna talk about how he is ready and willing to spend and be spent for their sakes, which is actually really surprising when you consider it, because the fact is that these people Paul was writing to, They were not willing to do that same thing for Paul. They weren't willing to spend and be spent for him. And yet there was something within Paul that drove him, that motivated him to do so gladly, to spend and be spent for the sake of others, even when they didn't do the same for him. And so in our study today, we're going to consider what that was that motivated Paul to live in this way and what it might look like for us to have that same thing in our lives as well. So the title of today's message is Spent for the Sake of Others, and in this passage, what we're going to see is this, that spending your life for the sake of others is an act of love in response to God's love for you. In Christ, That's our summary statement, and it'll also be our outline as we work our way through this passage. So let's take that sentence, and we're going to break it down into a few parts and use it as our guide as we work our way through these verses, verse by verse. So let's start with the first part of the sentence. Spending your life for the sake of others. We pick up in verse 11, where Paul writes to the Corinthians and he says, I have been a fool. You forced me to it, for I ought to have been commended by you. For I was not at all inferior to these super apostles, even though I am nothing. In the Corinthian church at this time, there was a problem. The problem was there was a group of people within the church who believed that they should be in charge of the church. They were asserting themselves that they were, in fact, the true leaders of the Corinthian church, and many of the people in the church were just kind of going along with it and listening to what these people said. But Paul the apostle didn't like this. He didn't like what these people were doing, and he did not want the Corinthians to follow them. And throughout this letter, Paul has been alluding to some of the problems with these so-called leaders in the Corinthian church. Problems with things that they taught and problems with things that they said and did. But here at the end of the letter, Paul is done alluding and being vague. He is now going to be very direct in telling the Corinthians that they should not follow these people. And he's going to tell them why they should not follow these people. You see, Paul the Apostle had a special place in his heart for the church in Corinth, and the reason was because he had founded this church himself on his second missionary journey, and for a year and a half, he had lived in this city and pastored their church. And even after he had left Corinth to go preach the gospel and plant other churches in other cities, Paul continued to be involved in the life of this church through a series of letters and personal visits. But this group of self-appointed leaders within the Corinthian church, they didn't like the fact that Paul continued to be involved in the life of their church. They resented Paul's ongoing involvement. They resented the fact that Paul wrote them letters and showed up unannounced and told them what to do and what not to do. And so these people, in an attempt to turn people away from Paul and endear them to themselves, these people started a smear campaign against the apostle Paul in which they told people that Paul was weak and that he wasn't a spiritual man. They claim that they were superior to Paul and all the other apostles for whatever that's worth. They said we're superior. Paul's weak, but we're strong. Paul is unspiritual, but we are spiritual. You should follow us and not follow them. Now, generally, the Apostle Paul didn't feel the need to defend himself against every nasty thing that anybody ever said against him. But in this case, it was different. In this case, it was different because these self-appointed leaders there in Corinth, not only were they full of pride, but they were actually preaching a different gospel. The Jesus that they talked about was different and the Jesus who the apostles had known and the, the gospel message they were preaching was a different gospel that was really no good news at all. See, they weren't preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ and him crucified. Their gospel wasn't a gospel of death and resurrection through Jesus. Rather, their message was a shallow message of self-help right? A shallow message of self-help that made empty promises of prosperity and power and success to those who follow Jesus. In essence, these people preached, if you follow Jesus, then you can become a winner like us, which is why they despised the apostle Paul, because in their estimation, Paul was a loser, But of course, Paul knew that the message these people were preaching, it wasn't actually good news and it wasn't a gospel that can save your soul. It was a different Jesus and a different gospel. And so Paul was willing to do whatever it took to make sure that the Corinthians did not follow these people, even if it meant defending himself against the accusations that these people were making against him. And that's why he says here in verse 11, I've been a fool. You forced me to it. For though I ought to have been commended by you, but I was not at all inferior to these super apostles, even though I am nothing. You see, ever since chapter 10, Paul has been speaking in his own defense. He's been talking about his credentials and why he really is qualified to be an apostle and that he really does have authority from God, that he really is a spiritual person. And obviously, Paul feels awkward and embarrassed that he even has to do this, that he has to toot his own horn and kind of sing his own praise. And he says here, I don't like this. I don't like talking about myself in these ways, but you guys have forced me to do this. And he says, it should be you guys. You guys, there in the church there. You should be defending me against these accusations that these people are making, but you haven't defended me, so I have to defend myself. And he says, I'm not at all inferior to these super apostles. Now, when he says super apostles, understand that's a sarcastic and mocking term that Paul made up really to kind of to tease or make fun of these people there in Corinth because these, these self-appointed leaders, they believed and they said that they were superior to Paul and all the other apostles, and Paul says, oh, you're, you're superior to, to me. Well, I guess I'm just a normal apostle. You must be a, a super apostle, right? He, he's mocking them and kind of, kind of making fun of them. It's kind of, like, kind of like when my wife gets angry, right, and sometimes I'm tempted to sneak up behind her and put a towel over her shoulders and say, look, now you have a cape. Now you're not just angry. Now you're super angry, but I, I would never actually do that because I'm I'm kind of afraid, so. But Paul says, uh, the the sign of a true apostle, he says in verse 12, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. You see, those in the church there in Corinth, they would have remembered the mighty things that God did in their midst when Paul was was with them as their pastor. And those things were evidence of Paul's apostolic authority. And, And those They contradicted the false narrative that these other people were trying to spread about Paul. He says in verse 13, For in what were you less favored than the rest of the churches, except that I myself did not burden you? Forgive me this wrong. Apparently, one of the accusations that these people had been making against Paul was that he cared more about the other churches than he did about the Corinthian church. And they said, don't listen to what Paul has to say, because he doesn't really care about us here in in Corinth. He cares about all the other churches more than he cares about us. And Paul says, seriously, you really think that I favored the other churches over you? He says, the only way I treated you differently, you there in Corinth, than I treated the other churches, is that I accepted money from other churches, but I never accepted a dime from any of you. You see, in the book of Acts, chapter 18, we read about how when Paul came to Corinth, he got a job. He worked as a tent maker in order to make ends meet while he was serving in that city, preaching the gospel and pastoring this church. Now, apparently, Corinth was the only city where Paul did this. It was the only city where he got a job to support himself so he wouldn't be a burden to the church financially. In his letters to the Corinthians, he's talked about this, in both his letters, about why he did this. He said he did it so that no one in Corinth could ever accuse him of just being in it for the money, of starting this church, or trying to convert people to follow Jesus just so he could get their money. Everywhere else where Paul went, apparently, if he stayed for a prolonged period of time, people in the church would support him as their pastor. But in Corinth, he never accepted a dime from them. So Paul here is talking sarcastically again here at the end of verse 13. He says, well, look, I'm sorry I didn't accept any of your money. I actually treated you better than all the other churches, and yet you accuse me of treating you worse. You know, it makes you wonder, Right? Paul clearly had done so much for the Corinthians and they didn't appreciate it. They didn't appreciate all that he had done for them. They believed bad things. When people said bad things about Paul, they just believed it. They didn't defend him. They happily followed after. Instead, they followed after false teachers who took advantage of them and mistreated them. And you might wonder, why is Paul even still trying with these people, right? Why not just say, fine, if that's what you guys want to think about me, if those are the kinds of people you want to follow, then go for it. Knock yourself out. Have fun. I've got more important things to do, and I've got other people who treat me good, and, uh, much better than you treat me. So you know what? Adios. See you in heaven, maybe, right? For some reason, Paul doesn't do that, though. Instead, Paul says this in verse 14. He says here for the third time, I am ready to come to you and I will not be a burden for I seek not what is yours, but you. For children are not obligated to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. See, rather than washing his hands of the Corinthians... Paul has been talking about how now he's preparing to make a third trip to Corinth to see them, to spend time with them. He hasn't given up on them. Paul's first trip, he says this is going to be his third trip. So his first trip was when Paul came to the city on his second missionary journey, founded the church, and stayed there for a year and a half pastoring the church. Paul's second trip to Corinth is a trip that he made in between the 1 Corinthians letter and the 2 Corinthians letter. It's a visit which he refers to in 2 Corinthians as his painful visit. It's a visit that didn't go great. And now this is going to be Paul's third visit to Corinth, the one that's upcoming. Now, we do know that Paul did eventually make this visit. He did go to Corinth. We read about it in the book of Acts, chapter 20, verses 1 through 3. It says there that when Paul came to Corinth, he stayed there for three months. And we know that it was during that time when Paul was there in Corinth that he wrote his letter to the Romans. Well, what Paul is saying here in verse 14 is that in spite of the way the Corinthians have treated him, he's not giving up on them. He's still going to come to them because he still wants to help them. He wants to see their church get on the right track. And this time around, he said, I'm still not going to receive any money from you because... His view of the Corinthians and his relationship with them is that he was their spiritual father and they were like his kids. And that's why he says there at the beginning of verse 15, he says, therefore, I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. Listen, how you spend your days is how you spend your life and how you spend your your money. You know, if your money represents your time, energy, and talents, then how you spend your money is also how you spend your life so think about this paul is saying i will most gladly spend my money and spend my time for the sake of your souls what he's saying here is this he's saying that he is he will gladly sacrifice his life for the sake of the corinthians keep in mind who the corinthians were these are people who have not reciprocated Paul's love for him, for them. These are people who slandered Paul. These are people who betrayed him. At very least, they have not stood up for him when they ought to have. And yet Paul says, still, I will gladly spend and be spent for the sake of your souls. I will sacrifice my goods. I will sacrifice my life for the sake of your souls. Not begrudgingly, but I'll do it gladly. This is a sentiment that Paul expressed in several of his letters in regard to his life. In his letter to the Philippians, Paul wrote, Even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. In his last letter in in 2 Timothy, right before the end of his life, Paul said this, For I am being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. A drink offering was when you would pour strong drink, usually wine, over the top of an offering. And it was a symbolic act. What it symbolized was pouring out your life, giving your life over to the Lord as an offering. But it makes you wonder, right? If you've only got one life to live, then why bother pouring out your life for the sake of others, especially if they don't appreciate what you're doing for them? Why not just spend your life on yourself? And that brings us to the next part of our sentence, which is this, spending your life for the sake of others is an act of love. Paul says at the end of verse 15 there, he says, if I love you more, am I to be loved less? In other words, what Paul is saying is that his actions on behalf of the Corinthians, how he is spending and being spent, how he is pouring out his life for them, He says, this is his act of love for them. You see, they aren't reciprocating his love, but Paul's actions are still an act of love. Notice something Paul says there in verse 14, going back one verse, he said, I seek not what is yours, but I seek you. In other words, he's saying, I'm not in this for what you can do for me. I'm not looking to get anything out of you. I just want you for your own sake, for your own good. That's what I'm after. You know, several years ago when we still lived in Hungary, we adopted a child. He's still part of our family, but at that time he was 14 years old. Uh, he was a kid who attended our church and he didn't have a family and the authorities were going to put him in an orphanage and move him halfway across the country to a place he'd never been where he didn't know anybody. And we thought, we can't just stand by and let this happen to this kid in our church. And so we offered that he could come live with us. And eventually we made it official and we legally adopted him. And as part of that process of adoption, we had to take a class And uh, it was like a week-long class with other people who wanted to adopt, and you had to pass the class in order to be approved to adopt. Well, on the first day of the class, the instructor made us all go around the room and introduce ourselves and say why we wanted to adopt a child. And people had different answers to that question, different responses, but they all basically fell into two categories. There were those who wanted to adopt because they felt that having a child would fulfill something that was missing in their lives. And then there were those who wanted to adopt because they wanted to do something to help a child who was in need. And it was interesting because when everyone had finished speaking, the instructor spoke up and said, the only acceptable reason to adopt is because you want to love a child, not because you want a child to do something for you. Because if your relationship with that child is based on you wanting that child to do something for you, to fill up something that's lacking in you, that's a terrible burden to place on anybody, much less a child. It's a burden that will absolutely crush them and which they can never live up to. You think about it, you're essentially looking at that child every day and saying, the only reason you're in my life Is because I have something missing and you're here to fill it up. So you better do a good job and you better do it now. What a terrible burden to put on someone. It's something that's impossible for them to live up to and fulfill. But isn't that how many people approach many relationships in our lives? Whether it's marriage, whether it's friendship, there's this temptation to look at other people only in regard to what they can do for you. And if that relationship requires more from you than what you get out of it, then many people are inclined to say, well, then that relationship isn't worth my time. That's a transactional approach to relationships. Your relationship with that person is based on what they can do for you. You're seeking them so they can serve you, so they can fill up what is lacking in you. But what Paul is describing here is a relationship which isn't about what the other person can do for you. It's about you choosing to love a person and pursue them for their sake rather than your own. It's a relationship that costs you something and you may not get a return on your investment. And what the adoption class instructor was telling us that day is that this, this is the essence of what love really is, spending and being spent for the sake of another person. But it isn't only that people have a transactional attitude when it comes to relationships with other people. We can also have a transactional attitude when it comes to our relationship with God. To have a transactional relationship with God means that you view God as useful to you to get the things that you want in life. Now, that's very different. That's very different than seeking God for who he is. So it's worth asking yourself the question, do you seek God primarily because he is useful or because he is beautiful? Those two motivations for seeking God they lead to two very different outcomes in life. If you seek him only because he is useful, then what will you do if God doesn't give you what you want or what you ask for? Or what will you do if God calls you like he called Isaiah to do something that's hard or costly or isn't fun? See, the reason why Isaiah was able to say, here I am, Lord, send me, before he even knew what God was calling him to do, or where God was going to send him, is because he had seen a glimpse of God's beauty. He had experienced a touch of God's grace. The same thing was true of the Apostle Paul. Remember in our study last week, how God had given Paul a glimpse of what heaven would be like, and that glimpse of heaven must have changed the way that Paul lived from that day forward for the rest of his life. Since he knew what awaited him, Paul wasn't obsessed with getting what other people could give him or living his best life now. Rather, because Paul knew that eternity in heaven awaited him, he was free. He was free to spend and be spent for the sake of others because there was someone else who had done that same thing for him. And that brings us to the final part of our sentence. Spending your life for the sake of others is an act of love in response to what to God's love for you in Christ, in response to God's love for you in Christ. Verse 16, Paul says, but granting that I myself did not burden you, I was crafty, you say, and got the better of you by deceit. Did I take advantage of you through any of those whom I sent you? I urged Titus to go and sent the brother with him. Did Titus take advantage of you? Did we not act in the same spirit? Did we not take the same steps? One of the rumors that these people were spreading about Paul was that even though he had never taken any of their money from them yet, that he was still going to do it. In fact, they said, you know, this whole thing that Paul was doing and taking up a special collection to help the suffering saints in Jerusalem, it was all just a scheme in which Paul was trying to collect their money like indirectly. And then he was going to take it all for himself and line his own pockets Apparently, though, everyone in Corinth loved Titus. They thought Titus was awesome. Paul, not so much. But Titus, they loved that guy. And Paul says, who do you think sent Titus to you? That was me. Me and Titus, we're on the same team. We're working together. If you trust Titus, then why wouldn't you trust me? Verse 19, he says, have you been thinking all along that we've been defending ourselves to you? It is in the sight of God that we have been speaking in Christ And all for your upbuilding, beloved. Paul says, You know, everything we've done, even in defending ourselves against these accusations, we didn't do it for our own sakes. We didn't do it to serve ourselves. We did it because we care about you and we want what is best for you. He says in verse 20 For I fear that perhaps when I come, I may find you not as I wish, and that you may find me not as you wish that perhaps there may be quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. I fear that when I come again, my God may humble me before you, and I may have to mourn over many of those who sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual immorality, and sensuality that they have practiced. What Paul's saying here is, the reason I've written you this letter is because when I come to visit you, I'm worried that my visit isn't going to be very enjoyable for either of us. He says, it's not going to be enjoyable for me if I come there and I find that you're still continuing in all the same sins that I've warned you about and told you to repent of. And it's not going to be enjoyable for you if I come there and I'm just confronting you the entire time. So by sending this letter, now before he visits, Paul is saying... Here's your chance. Get your house in order before I come so that my visit can be pleasant and positive and just a great time of fellowship and not a a downer. Ultimately, we don't know whether Paul's visit to Corinth ended up being a pleasant one or a difficult one. But either way, we do know that Paul's visit was motivated by love. Let me ask you this. How are you spending your life? how are you spending this finite resource of your life? And many people are afraid that if they spend their life or their time or their money on others, that they will miss out as a result. They'll miss out in life because they won't have anything left for themselves. But Jesus shows us a different way. Jesus was God come to us in human flesh In the person of Jesus Christ, God became one of us. He walked our streets, he experienced hunger and cold, joy and sadness, even rejection and pain, and he did it all for us. Even though we have sinned against him, God did not wash his hands of us or give up on us. Instead, for our sakes, God came to us in the person of Jesus in order to save us He spent his life for us. For our sakes, Jesus lived a life of perfect obedience to the Father to fulfill all the righteous requirements of the law on our behalf. For our sakes, Jesus died a sacrificial death, condemned and crucified, not for his own sins, but for ours in order to take the judgment that we deserved in our place. For our sakes, Jesus was resurrected, defeating death and making a way, opening the way to eternal life. And for our sakes, he is coming again. All of this, everything he did, it was for us. And it was at the greatest cost imaginable. And yet he didn't do it begrudgingly. He did it with joy. Remember what Paul said there in verse 14, how he, said, he told the Corinthians that he, he wasn't after what they could do for him All he wanted was them for their sakes. Well, in the same way, God loves you. He does. God loves you. And he doesn't love you because of what you can potentially do for him. He doesn't love you because of what you can give to him. The fact is that God doesn't need any of us or what we can give. But the good news is that he wants you. He doesn't need us, but he wants you. The Bible tells us that God, our Savior, desires all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. And the way to be saved is by putting your trust and faith in Jesus and what he did to save you. You see, when you really understand what Jesus did for you, the costs that he paid, the fact that he gave his life for you, the ultimate act of love to redeem your life so you could spend eternity with him, it changes your perspective. It causes you to say, along with Isaiah, here I am, Lord, send me. Let me be an instrument of your love in this world with the short time that I have left. I'm willing to spend and be spent for the sake of others because that's what you, God, did for me in Jesus. So I'll do whatever you call me to do because I've received your grace and because I know that heaven awaits me. So because you gave your life for me, now I want to spend my time and my resources, not just on myself, but for the sake of others, in response to your love for me. And you know what's ironic? The irony is, when you do that, what you find is that rather than missing out, it's actually in spending and being spent in love for God and in love for others that you find a truly fulfilling, rich, and meaningful life. Friends, spending your life for the sake of others is an act of love in response to God's love for you in Christ. Would you please bow your heads with me and let us pray.
0: You have been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Make sure to tap the subscribe button if you would like to have new messages delivered to your device every week when they are released. If you have been blessed by this message and would like to support our ministry, you can do so by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or by giving a donation to our church on our website at whitefieldschurch.com.